As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the latest edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, managing editor at Bloomberg Markets. Uh, my co-host Tracy Alloway is away again this week, but fortunately she is going to be back next week. But uh, since she's out, we're doing another uh, special episode or unusual episode. I want to talk to one of my colleagues here at Bloomberg who wrote a fantastic news story that I absolutely love entitled the big long, making a killing in, mar- in a market everyone left for dead. It's about the people who made a fortune by going long risky assets down at the, uh, the worst part uh, during the worst period of the financial crisis. So essentially the opposite of the uh, big short. So um, without further ado, I want to get right into it. I'm here with uh, Alistair Marsh, who wrote this story. Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Let's give uh, the quick uh, roundup. What's your story about? Who are these investors who were bold enough to go long very risky assets right at the bottom of January 2009? Who were they and what was their bet? Sure. Well, they were trading asset-backed securities for a UK bank called HBOS. HBOS has a very interesting history in the UK. In fact, one of the most controversial ones, you might say. It um, ultimately collapsed back in the end of 2008. It had a government bailout. It had a secret cash infusion from the central bank and ultimately was taken over by Lloyds Bank. So while all this um, was happening in the the background, you had these two traders at HBOS called Milan Patel and Richard Paddle, who had spent the last 10 years or so trading ABS every day and um, when the crisis hit... So uh, ABS, the asset-backed securities, and these were the securities that were tied to mortgages mostly that everybody has come to know and understand were sort of a key variable in the financial crisis. Exactly. Yeah, these were typically backed by... So these were bonds backed by mortgages in the UK, typically. Um, And they were trading these for 10 years or so, for most of that time, these were considered a, a relatively vanilla product. Most of them were rated AAA. Um, it, it all seemed like a, a good and safest houses, so to speak, kind of bet. The title of your story is called The Big Long, obviously a reference to the big short. So explain what they did in this trade and how it was sort of the mirror opposite of the big short trade. Sure. Well, there's many kind of parallels to the big short. Effectively, the big short was saying that um, the housing market is going to collapse and these subprime mortgage bonds are priced at crazy levels that don't uh, imply that collapse. Well, they had the opposite view that in the UK, the housing market was not going to collapse and that the mortgage bonds in the UK implied that the mortgage market 
had collapsed or was about to, and they believed it wasn't. And they believed that the same kind of mass foreclosures that we saw in the US or the same spike in mortgage arrears was, wasn't going to happen in the UK. And obviously, they, they ultimately turned out to be correct. So anyone who's seen the movie or read the book, The Big Short, knows that it wasn't just enough to have a negative view on housing or asset values, but that these trades were not trivial to exercise. They were complicated to structure. In the case of the story you reported on, there were difficulties and uh, complications in executing the opposite trade. What did they have to do to express their view on these assets? Sure. Well, the, the biggest difference between the two, leaving aside one was short and one was long, was that on the short bet, those, these were mainly institutional investors, hedge funds and others trying to do this. But the big long, these guys, whilst they were traders by profession, they worked for a bank, right. actually they used their, they put up their own money. This was a kind of, ultimately they were retail investors. And so they had to go, they had to first get compliance from the bank. And they managed to get this. It's what's quite interesting, and I've, I've had feedback from a number of people in the asset securities market here in the UK who were <laughs> quite indignant that these guys were able to do this because they whilst working at various other banks, wished that they had had the opportunity mm. they were permitted to do so as well. But anyway, they they, um, they had to ask compliance. That, that They managed to get that. And then they had to go to the retail broker and say, I want to buy ABS, please. And the retail broker would say, you, you want to buy what? Uh, typically, they're... Right. They're, these are retail brokers that are typically used to selling vanilla bonds and stocks, right? They're not asset-backed securities or this sort of more complicated stuff that institutional uh, traders trade, right? Exactly. Yeah. They, they, it'd be the kind of thing like, I want to buy BP shares or I want to sell Barclays yeah. shares, please. So asking for triple B granite bonds, for example, which is what their best trade was, was virtually unheard of. And they had to explain to these, to the, uh, basically they called a call center in Glasgow. <laughs> um, for some reason in the UK, most of our call center operators are based in Scotland because there's something to do with a Scottish accent that's kind of soothing or something like that. Is that but true? It, is that really a thing? That's really a thing, yeah. <laughs> call out most, most bank switchboards, etc. It's always uh, in Scotland. Huh. Anyway, so, so they call... Um, they call Glasgow, they're, they're on the phone for two hours, and they have to explain not only what they want, um, what it is, how it works, but also kind of where they can get it, and in some cases, who to call to get it. So f for the ABS, they because they're sitting at the Bloomberg, they have all the contacts in the market. They know that, for example, Morgan Stanley has got these bonds, or they know that Credit Suisse has got those bonds, so they'd say... Call this guy at Morgan Stanley, please, and get me these bonds. So basically, they're doing the job for the retail. Broker. I love this. It's so because hilarious. they're because they're institutional traders, they know everything there is to know about what they're trading. Yeah. But because they, for this weird quirk, were forced to go through a retail uh, brokerage to make these purchases, they had to sit there on the phone and uh, walk the broker through the trade. Exactly. So Milan uh, Milan Patel said that he would. Uh, while sitting at his desk, he'd be on hold or be listening to the Beethoven Symphony in the, in the background <laughs> whilst the uh, call center person tried to work out what it was and ha how, to, how to get hold of it. But, the, but ultimately, these retail brokers were able to do the mechanics of buying these uh, assets and, or, and getting them into their accounts. Ultimately, yes. But um, it was very painful. That was... Uh, now, it was worth it, but it was very painful. Now, do the exp the stories of these two traders, Patel and Paddle, do they sort of undermine a common argument 
I mean, the view is, I think, in popular culture and probably expressed by the books and movies that the people trading these assets had no idea what they were trading. They had no idea what was in them. Everyone on Wall Street was kind of stupid, and there were only a few smart people. <laughs> but does their experience show that actually a lot of the traders really did understand them and were at least more aware of what was in these assets than popular culture has depicted? Well, they, they certainly knew them, and there's no. And it, the, basically, they the way they explain it is that they were trading for ten years. They knew the names of the bonds. They knew how they were structured. You, they knew where to mm -hmm. buy them, who to sell them to. So they knew the market like the back of their hand, and it kind of stands to reason that the same thing would be true of other traders, or other institutions. Now, that's not to say that they weren't kind of egregious. Uh, <laughs> things done in ver ver sure. various times in various places but it stands to reason that um people who trade these products every day and these are not simple products they're very complicated that's why it took them so long to get it through their their brokers um you know they should know the risk they should know what's backing them they should know sure. what the mortgages are like they should know the chances of um you know the, the, the arrears history they, but they it, should know that stuff but it does seem like the way people talk about this period always is very black or white there's the few people <laughs> that were warning and then all of the other people were sheep and not you know not paying attention to the risks at all and it sounds like it's not quite that simple yeah, that's true. And actually, I think in some of the um, pages of the the Big Short, actually, yeah. it implies that some of the guys at the investment banks did know what they were doing. They mm -hmm. were just hoping that the uh, merry-go-round would go on right. for a little bit longer than it did. But so they knew of, what was in there. Of course, one of the uh, things that makes the Big Short such a compelling story is just the jaw-dropping returns uh, <laughs> that those traders got and the amount of money they made. Talk to me about how well uh, these two traders did. Well, they didn't do anything um, on the scale of, of the, the big short. They didn't become billionaires. They didn't become billionaires, no. Um, I think, well, they were... They didn't give. They didn't disclose fully the numbers. We mm -hmm. had to do some calculations here, but we we estimated that Patel made about one point two million pounds, which is not bad return. He, the, the best um, they put he put forward, we reckoned about four hundred and fifty thousand um, pounds. Their best return was eight hundred percent on bonds called Granite. <laughs> right. These, these were sort of controversial and central to the whole thing. Tell us about the uh, Granite bonds. Well, Granite were backed by mortgages from a UK bank called Northern Rock. And Northern Rock is probably the closest thing we had in the UK to subprime. Um, the bank basically massively over-leveraged. Um, uh, well, it had a huge uh, um, residential mortgage-backed securities uh, program, mm -hmm. and which was called Granite, and allowed it to fund £50 billion worth of mortgage lending. Um, ultimately, it succumbed to the first bank run in the UK in 140 years. So the, I remember the scenes of watching people queuing outside of Northern Rock branches on the high streets of various towns across the UK. That 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 sort of that is almost as iconic as the images of the Lehman Brothers bankers leaving right. the uh, building with the, with the you know their crates and so on. And um, so so Northern Rock is a very kind of controversial and uh, um, institution, and it was bailed out by the UK government. Um, but granite bonds. Because they were sold, I mean, without going to all the technicalities of yeah. securitization, they were sold by a separate vehicle that continued to exist um, once Northern Rock um, now, 
didn't. In the story, you quote Paddle as saying, quote, there was a concern in the market that the UK government would rip it up. What did that mean? That they would theoretically pay nothing in the end? Yeah, well, the, 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 they bought these bonds. So they were initially sold at 100 pence on the pound. Yep. They bought them at 8 pence. Um, so now 90, this was 92% discount. Yeah. Um, now, the, that was for the riskiest bonds, the ones that were first in line to yeah. take losses. Um, but even so, that's, that's kind of a huge um, decline. Yes. And the view was simply that basically it was down to political risk, that the UK government, having taken over the institution, I don't think we'd had a nationalization like that in, well, in anyone's memory. Right. Um, what's going to happen? This is unprecedented. Are they just going to say, do you know what? We're not paying those bonds back. This bank doesn't have enough money. We're not going to pay. Why did they feel confident that the uh, government would not rip up those uh, bonds? Well, they didn't actually, but what their, basically their view was that um, mathematically it worked out that they should get at least get their money back. Mm. So they bought at eight pence on the pound. And I think the way they described, well, the way they described it to me was that um, it would take about two years for the granite structure to be unwound, mm. um, as in it's quite a complicated structure and lots of mortgages behind it and so on. It would take about two years in their calculations to unwind. And in that period, they should have uh, two years of 5% coupons, so 10%. Oh. So they should get 10 back having put eight in. So that was their very kind of basic bet. Um Obviously, they then had a huge, huge price rally. So that, that's where the huge returns came from. But at that point, they were just thinking... Yeah, so in you have this chart that obviously the listeners to the podcast can't see. But I'm looking at it right now, and it shows that they bought in around 8, and then they sold around 60. But actually, the uh, the bonds continued to rally. Uh, well, well, uh, you know, There was a little bit of volatility, but they actually rallied much more even after they sold them. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I did ask them, why didn't you try to hold on? Yeah. Because actually they were redeemed in January and December so that they don't exist anymore. Mm. And they were paid back at par, so at 100. That's just, um, uh, let's just pause right there. How unbelievable that is. That, yeah. you know, the, we all remember these bonds, these first in line losses from 2008 and 2009. I don't even think that got much attention that in 2015, they had essentially recovered 100% of their value. Not that they recovered some, but virtually the entire thing. I think that part is almost entirely uh, unknown to people. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable, really. Um, but I, they said, or Patel specifically said, that his style of investing is not to try to time the top and not to try to hold on for the last 20% or so. But having gone from 8 to 70 or 60, yeah. He thought, you know what, that's a pretty good return. I'll take that. And actually, at the time they sold out, which was about uh, 2010, 2011, uh, it wasn't clear at all that the UK government was going to sell them. That's that's why they were redeemed, right. because the government sold them. But it wasn't clear at all that that was going to happen at that point. So Yeah, so no reason to get greedy. 8 to 60 is a pretty uh, a pretty nice return, isn't it? Indeed, yeah. Um, let's let's look big picture for a second. Um, you know, one thing I want, I'm always curious about is... Um, the sort of psychology of trading, making a making a bet or making a trade that's the exact opposite of how the market sees. Like basically having the guts to make a call that's different from what everyone around you is um, calling for. And it seems to me that bears 
they're always bears. They're always people who think the world is coming to an end. They're always people who are predicting doom. And that's sort of accepted. People just accept that there's going to be negative people out there. But in a way, optimism in the face of panic actually strikes me as much more brave because no one likes to hear someone called a permabull or people mock the bulls. Uh, People have an intellectual respect for negative people. How does that – what's your view on that? Do you think that like – that this view that they expressed was particularly brave and gutsy given the prevailing negative sentiment at the time? I think it was, and especially when you think about the very place where they were sitting, that when they put these trades on, mm-hmm. um, or when they first asked for permission to do it, that was in January 2009. And it was that month that the takeover of HBOS actually happened. So mm-hmm. they'd had in you know, a few months earlier, Lehman had gone down. Then uh, HBOS itself had had a twenty billion pound um, bailout from the government. It had a, a central bank, uh, well, additional top up from the central bank. And so, with, with all that background, for them to be sort of bullish, for lack of a better way of putting it, it is um, it's quite remarkable. But what's also interesting about these guys is that that they're not particularly. Um, they're not how you might think or of a caricature of a bond trader. Mm. They're not kind of um, gregarious types or um, brash. They're both quite um, quiet and quite thoughtful. And actually, Milan in particular was very interesting because he's he had, he started um, investing in bank bonds, not ABS. Even though he traded ABS for a living, he first started investing in bank bonds. And he told me, having not known this market that well, he spent his evenings for about a month or so reading through bond prospectuses. So this is just like Michael Burry. Yeah, so it's like someone who's actually willing to dive into all the paperwork to really figure out what's in there. And how did you find this story, just as a reporter? It was quite fun finding them, actually. I I spent uh, quite a bit of time in 2015 reporting on the sale of granite. The UK government announced it was going to sell. At the time, it was £13 billion. It was the biggest ever sale of assets from the UK government. And because Granite was such a well-known um, series of bonds, I wanted to investigate and actually managed to break some news on who was bidding for them, mm-hmm. who wanted to buy them. In the end, it was Cerberus who, who won. And But as part of that, I kept hearing about these um, mystical traders, or the mythical, I should hmm. say, traders who bought Granite at the bottom. And I guess there had to be someone, right? Yeah, well, one... one um, uh, whimsical hedge fund manager told me that it, it was Harold Hindsight who bought the bonds at the bottom. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I actually wanted to find out who did, uh, yeah. particularly when in December the first bonds started to be redeemed and they were paid back at par, right. uh, at 100, which t- to me thought if you bought at the bottom and, and got 100 back, that's amazing. Um, and so I kind of made it a bit of a mission to find out who bought them. And through asking various contacts in the market, uh, I came across Richard Paddle and... Um, he was kind enough to, to speak to me and tell me the tale, and it was fascinating. And then uh, Milan also. So, yeah, it was a, a really interesting investigative process. And uh, looking back at the crisis in the, well, the UK's experience of the crisis is really interesting. Are there, are there others that you think probably you haven't found? <laughs> well, there's others I know of, but oh. I haven't necessarily included in, in the piece. Um, there were some others who did it with them at HBOS. Mm-hmm. I mean, Milan and Richard were effectively the brains of the trade, but there were other traders oh, that see. got in on various uh, various purchases with them. Um, 
We also know of a few other hedge funds and one particular large U.S. investment bank um, that shall remain unnamed, I guess. That, Ooh, that uh, sounds good. Yeah, that also got in on, on, on the trade, but they were doing it not for them, not for themselves or their own personal money, but for for the either the prop desk or for the hedge fund. So, looking ahead to today, are there always these types of stories in the market? People finding assets with extreme dislocations, or is this really the type of thing that when there's a huge crisis or a huge bubble, yes, you find them, but most of the time, people can't really be expected to find these extraordinary uh, dislocations? I think you could probably argue that both ways, actually. I mean, Richard Paddle uh, said something very interesting, that he, he reckons that every 10 years, there's, or mm. a- approximately every 10 years, there's some big market event that happens, whether it be the dot-com the dot com bubble bursting, whether it be the Asian financial crisis, whether right. it be EM debt in, in Russia, for example. And this time around, he said, well, this in, so in the 2008-2009, it was in the ABS market, aspect securities market. And since he was trading that market, he was in the perfect position ah. to, uh, to profit from it. Now, following his logic, then, you know, in a few years' time, we should see something else, something similar. And perhaps some people might say, oh, that's bank bonds, or maybe that's high yield. Right. Or some people might even say that's ETFs. Um, so I, I'm sure that there are going to be more of these type of scenarios. I guess you just need to be in the right place at the right time. I really know that market. Well, Alistair, thank you very much for uh, joining us. I'm looking forward to, in a few years, you reporting on who made the big money in 2015 and 2016. I'm sure you'll find them. And I really appreciate you uh, coming on the Outlaws podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us on the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow Alistair, too, because he'll be turning up the next great, uh, the next great scoop. He's on Twitter at, at Alistair J. Marsh. And we'll be back here next week. We at Bloomberg are proud of our new and growing slate of original content podcasts. They include Benchmark, a jargon-free dive into the stories that drive the global economy. It's hosted by Tori Stilwell, Aki Ito, and Dan Moss. Odd Lots, hosted by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, takes you on a not-so-random walk through hot topics in markets, finance, and economics. And each week, Bloomberg m reporter Alex Sherman discusses market-moving news about mergers in Deal of the Week. From Washington and points in between, meantime... We showcase the intersection of politics and pop culture with Culture Caucus, hosted by John Heilman and Will Leach from Bloomberg Politics. And then there's Masters in Politics, hosted by veteran TV producers Tammy Haddad and Betsy Fisher-Martin. This bi-weekly podcast features extended conversations with candidates, campaign strategists, and journalists. You can find all these podcasts on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any one of your very favorite podcast platforms. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. 
Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.